we're always talking to customers and learning their pain points. Similarly, inside the company, we want to talk to our colleagues and understand, okay, if, if these are examples of what AI can do, help us ideate them based on what you know about the pain points that you're facing. And then we can help solve those problems to see how, whether we can solve those problems with AI. It's also important to keep the conversation at the right level for the audience. You know, you don't want them to be threatened by the technology. It's there to help them do their job and actually, you know, move to a higher level of work that they're doing so that they don't have to do the grunt work that is often involved in their day-to-day work. They can have an AI-driven tool, help them with that, and they can get out of the weeds and, and think at a higher level. I'm Greg Stewart, CEO of MMA Global. I'm Rex Briggs, an author, marketing researcher, and entrepreneur, and this is Decoding AI for Marketing. Greg, something that we've mentioned a lot on this show is the fact that having AI at this moment in time in our careers is just, you know, amazing, right? I mean, AI is having the moment. It's a moment. But it's also accelerating at this incredible rate. Right. It's kind of feels like one of those 15-year overnight success stories that you hear about in Hollywood. But listen, the goal for today was to really talk to somebody who is super immersed in the cutting edge of, I think, broadly marketing technologies and somebody who didn't just start testing AI like, you know, some of us maybe in the last year or two, but has made it a part of his job and to really improve the performance and bottom line of the company for what has been a very long time. And not everybody recognizes, you know, like you, Rex, you've been doing it for a long time. So our guest today is Salil Sateh, Vice President of Performance Marketing at Walmart. So just to set for everybody, you know, you've been at, at Walmart now for a little while. You run the marketing tech stack for them in addition to performance marketing. And you've done, I guess, variations of probably elements of those roles, Uber, eBay, Microsoft. There's a pretty good list. I mean, people can kind of look you up and get a sense of that. But I I think the question we'd ask you is maybe just give an overview, I think at some level, about where you see AI and marketing tech. Like, what's the state of the industry right now, the state of the products around that? And how how good are we at these kinds of things? We've been using AI for you know, a long time at Walmart, it's not new at all. And in my previous companies as well, we use it pretty extensively. And I'd say AI is what has helped us drive a lot of critical advancements in the technology and then in our operation of marketing. Yes, there's always new advancements happening right now, but the idea of using AI is certainly not new. I would say that there are places where we've been using AI in marketing tech for many years, whether it's on the choosing how much to bid for an ad, segmentation, targeting, and measurement. All of those have been really ripe areas for AI. And as AI has developed, those models and the way we've used them have have developed as well. Relatively new is the use of generative AI. That's come leaps and bounds. And, yeah. and it's really yeah. because like more tools have become available from vendors and media partners to generate content, creatives, make decisions on who sees which ads. And it's actually not limited to the paid marketing side. Even on the unpaid side, whether it's push and email and SEO, those are all developing with generally the advancements in AI and then generative AI in general. It's at the cusp of really kind of accelerating and expanding in scope, but it's not new definitely for marketing tech or marketing. So as you split out that difference between the machine learning type you know, AI that's been part of a lot of the marketing activities and this new generative AI, 
part here. What are some of the use cases that you're most excited about or that you've tested and validated and said, this works, this is important for us to scale? One of the things that I'm really interested in testing with the, the new generative AI work is how we generate content for our app and site and how it works for SEO. There's a lot of uncertainty about how Google and Bing and others will evaluate that content. So I'm curious about you know, how that changes the landscape for SEO. I'm sure it'll be a combination of humans and machines. That's not going to change. And it'll be that combination that figures out what's best to answer questions for our customers, help provide them relevant and useful content that helps them get answers to their questions and helps them in their customer journey. And if we do that, at the end of the day, we're doing our job well and SEO goodness will follow from that. I'm testing that right now and, and really looking forward to what we see there. And then there's so many other use cases, like I said, some that we've been using for, for a while, propensity modeling, lookalike modeling, finding recommendations for our customers on the site and in the app. AI is at the backbone for that and has been for a while. And then there's new things, new use cases around generating creatives, generating variants of the creatives. And then measurement is another area where those use cases where AI actually applies. You talk about predictive analytics, you talk about MTA and LTA kind of measurements as well, like the underlying basis is starting with different levels of AI. And so I would say that those use cases continue to be strong and continue to get better. Hey, Silo, I don't, I don't know if you know, but uh, do you realize you're on a podcast with the guy who created multi-touch attribution? I am. I am. Okay. So that's why I figured that, you know, that would really resonate <laughs> with you guys and you know it really well and, and your listeners probably do as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if everybody knows. Yeah. No, for the, for the listeners, at least, you know, Rex Briggs is the guy who founded that technology. He did it on behalf of Microsoft who asked him a question. And then he eventually brought it to me when I was running the IEB and we were like, oh my God, if we're going to measure internet going into the future, we got to have a new method because MMM isn't going to do it. Maybe let's stick with measurement for a moment. How do you think AI shows up in measurement today? Maybe if you, to the degree you can, maybe be a little forward leaning about where that works. Like break it down for the listener. Like what should they be looking at? What questions should they be asking? What are they looking for? How does AI really even improve measurement? I'm not sure I totally understand all the applications of that. Well, I'm sure Rex can talk about it even in more depth than I can. But I would say from a user perspective, and, and actually, you know, the models we built that we built in-house to help us with the measurement, you know, even the simplest last touch attribution, you have to figure out, you know, how to get the right data and, you know, clean it up and then make your attribution based on that. MTA adds the additional complexity, which I don't want to speak when we have the expert here, but but really, you know, figuring out which of those channels is getting the right credit and and knowing that there's a period of time over which that credit accrues. So how do you allocate the right credit to the right channels and the right touch points in your attribution? But then you go beyond that and you want to measure incrementality of the conversion as well or, or whatever action you're measuring through your measurement system. And for that, we have that added complexity that we're dealing with store sales as well as online sales. Mm -hmm. And for a while, the thinking was that all of our performance marketing is really driving our e-commerce sales. And then things like TV and out of home are driving our store sales. The reality is search ads have a huge impact on our store sales just because mm -hmm. of our you know, huge footprints of 5,000 stores. And our TV ads have a big impact on our e-commerce sales as well. So you really cannot differentiate between those. And your measurements has to take into account the incrementality of all of those media across all of those situations, offline and online. 
since I'm the ignorant one here, okay, we can use statistics and mathematics to figure out much of what you just said. Why do I need to have AI in the equation? Or what does AI do to measurement that I'm not doing today? The basis of a lot of AI is statistics. That's true. But the way it's developed and the ability to learn from the data, train on that data, make predictions based on that, that is where what we, you know, various flavors of AI. And AI, like generative AI is the you know, talk of the town in a sense right now. It is. Uh, that's because it's really made a lot of advancements. But predictive modeling, recommendations, classification, all of those have a statistical basis, but they're part of the, you know, the general field of AI. Yeah, I, I think that the interesting part here is that most of the optimization that you talked about has been media optimization because that's the easiest to see and measure. Like, you know, this ad was delivered in this context, what's its conversion versus the this, this same ad delivered in another context. But what becomes really interesting, I think, with AI is two factors. One is the ability to look at message level impact and audience level impact, and now to be able to use media, message, and audience all simultaneously to figure out what is that right combination. And I've just started experimenting with trying to see if we could ask large language models to interpret why did this creative work better with this audience in this context and to see if it can give us a reasonable explanation. And if it can learn from those explanations through genetic algorithms, could it fine tune itself to better predict what the next outcome would be? So I think there are some interesting applications. The real thing that will turn it over though, is that if we do so much AI optimization in real time, what do we need a rear view mirror mix model that we don't get for three or four months until after the fact? Wait, Rex, are you saying it can go real time? Is that what you're, is it like this would allow us to go real time? Yeah. So if, if you have real-time decisioning with more things happening with real-time decision, right now, the only real-time decisioning that's happening is mostly around bid management. Like how much should I pay for yeah. this impression to put this ad in front of this person? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much the max of it. With the work that you're doing, Greg, with MMA Global and you and I are doing together, we're now looking at saying, well, could you optimize a message as well at the same yeah. time? And probably totally. less than 1% of digital advertising that isn't in Google search. I'm talking about video, audio, digital display. Yeah. Only about 1% of it's doing real-time decisioning on the message with AI making that decision. But that could easily be 60 to 70% of all things that happen, including right. you know what happens on your web page, what happens in your call center, what happens with the emails you get, what happens with all the digital ads. So I think Salil's on to that point, which is that it could really upend the way we think about measurement and give us a much, much more effective world pretty soon. Even on the email and push notification side, you know, we may decide that we're going to send an email to a customer today, but what is the best message to send today? And that in real time, we would adjust based on their propensity, based on their most recent purchase history or browse history or what's yeah. left in their shopping cart. And even the time of day, when you look at your push notifications, Rex, or respond to them might be different from when Greg does or I do. And so I want to be able to adjust that timing as well. So even on the, you know, outside of paid marketing, there's lots of opportunity to optimize there. One of the things that Rex has seen in the research he's been doing with us, we do this consortium for AI personalization. He's done audio. And I'm going to ask you if you've seen anything like this or examples like this. Okay, ready? On average basis, female voice in an audio ad would perform better for this particular product and campaign. After 10 p.m., the male voice always performed better. I wouldn't have predicted that. I wouldn't have seen that. Have you seen anything like that in the work that you're doing that like, kind of just goes, oh, my God, never could have guessed, never could have seen it coming? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and not that example. That's news to me. But <laughs> but in terms of the creative optimization, where we are always looking at multiple variants of our creatives and seeing which message resonates when with which audiences. There's definitely advances that have made this, you know, even more sophisticated now. But even back, you know, several years ago at prior companies, we were doing this and recognizing which faces in a creative resonate better and oh, with right. which audiences, for example, how many faces, how much of the ad should be kind of the call to action versus, you know, other images in that. Yeah. And then how that varies over time as well. Seasonality plays a factor into that. So I, I do recall us finding those, in some cases, surprising insights from the work that we've done. Yeah, with 5,000 stores, even just the simple weather trigger, the ability to dynamically see what's the weather forecast going to be for this person and how do I push online because it's stormy, they don't want, they're, they're less likely to leave the home right now, or do I yeah. bring them into the store because, you know, weather's nice. So there's so many easy, easy things like low hanging fruit here, but I want to, yeah. I want to take the question in a little bit of different direction. Because if you take measurements changing, and that implies that we're learning different things about how to connect with people in real time in different ways and be more dynamic and more personal, how are you thinking about the agent shopping experience? Because that could really upend much of the way we think about our apps, which are shopping lists, you know, easy search and find. If you begin to interact with an agent who's then trying to manage you know, what, what goes in your shopping cart or what do you need and trying to do that work for you? Where's your thinking on how fast that's going to change? What type of experiments you're doing in that area? What do you think? Well, we have a tool called predictive baskets that are on the site and in our app already. And they predict your basket based on your past purchase history. In many cases, when it's groceries, food, consumables, replenishable things, where we can actually also predict the likelihood of a replenishment now or needing a replenishment now, we adjust it based on that. So for example, I might get through coffee capsules or pods much more quickly than Rex or Greg do. And so I might get those uh, predictions more frequently than you do. Or I might have three dogs and need to get through dog food much more quickly than someone with one dog. So those adjustments we make on a personalized basis and then predict the basket that we would recommend for you. And then with one click, you can add everything to your cart and then check out. And then obviously you can go in and make some adjustments to that or add in other things as well. So it's an agent behind the scenes in terms of an AI model that's predicting this and suggesting it to you, but it's right there in the customer experience. And we've been doing that for a while now. Are you thinking about personifying that agent at all? Or do you think it works better probably just being more backend? I don't know whether we've tried the personification of that and whether that adds to the, you know, the receptivity of that. I think it's a pretty well-used feature on our site. So it's working very effectively. And then we use that through other mechanisms as well. That the same model output can be used through email and push. It doesn't have to be only on the site in the app. So have you had any examples you want to share about having to sold a Chevy a Tahoe for a dollar? You've seen this, right? I have not. What is that? Yeah, somebody <laughs> tricked a chatbot of a Chevrolet dealer ship. They had sort of hastily put up, unfortunately. Somebody came in and they got the, uh, they got the chatbot to agree to sell a Chevy Tahoe for a dollar. 
nice. It's a binding deal. I don't know. Rex, did it go through? That was in California. I don't know if you the, saw that. The person, it was funny because we had just done training with MMA Global. There was about 1,600 people that registered. And one of the exercises was to show people how dangerous it is to use chatbots yeah. and have the authority to negotiate because yeah. you can get a deal like that. I wondered if someone had gone through our training program, had done that just to, just <laughs> yeah, to punk GM know. or something. But. Yeah, well, that that's probably the good argument for why you wouldn't at Walmart want to personify and create a chatbot to do the shopping thing. But it is interesting as you think about the brand and what the relationship to shopping becomes as these generative AI becomes more and more capable. And to, to Greg's point, there's a downside to it because these things are still, you don't have complete control over what they do, no matter how many custom instructions you try to provide. So there's right. there's still that risk. Yeah. So I think you guys are probably splitting the difference pretty wise, but it is interesting to see what your thoughts are about where where that shopping experience might go with uh, chatbots or agents or things like that. Well, we've been working on technology that allows AR and VR and, and use of more AI in our fashion vertical, helping people, you know, shop the look, understand, you know, what that particular dress would look like on models that look like them or yourself as well, you can take that. And so that's been an, very effective for us. And then there's another recently launched feature where we're allowing customers using generative AI to get a basket created for them based on like if, if they're doing a Super Bowl party, what things should they buy for that? And then for oh, how many right. people and so on, or if they're, you know, a picnic basket to go on a trip, you know, what should they pack for that kind of that is event. such a great idea. I, I always and, end up forgetting so one simple. or two things. Yeah. And to have something to double check the work. That's a great idea. Yeah. That will show up in the app and on the site for us to be able to just, you know, pick the event, use Gen AI to get suggestions and then fill a basket and then adjust it according to our additional needs. How do you double check that for the safety standpoint? What are some of your concerns about the user experience with generative AI? While generative AI is much better than it used to be in terms of being able to provide these suggestions, the quality still needs to be checked, whether it's for brand safety purposes, the output that it might generate for a creative, you want to check that. Or there are other use cases where, you know, non-business users can use text to code to generate SQL queries and, and generate, you know, data that they would then use. But it's still not always at the level where it won't have inaccuracies. And so I think there's still specialized expertise that humans provide that needs to monitor or check the output. You also want to make sure that the output for some of the generative AI, not just the example that I gave about the, the shopping experience, but in general for generative AI, that the output, there's no illegal output in what's coming out. You're not always sure what the model has been trained on and the question that you're asking how the model's interpreting that to give an answer and so those are the kinds of safeguards that you have to be careful about i would encourage marketers to play around with the technology and use it as much as possible but be conscious about these kinds of guardrails that they'd want to check or have someone check for them I like that idea with Walmart. You have so much of a massive selection. I guess you wouldn't want to have somebody say, ah, I'm going to burgle houses. Can you put together a package of all the things I need? Start with a black oh, yeah. ski mask. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to that point, I'm kind of curious to what degree you can kind of share, like, where do you think the company is in terms of adopting AI? Is there, what's the sentiment within corporations today? Is it just outright fear 
uncertainty, concern. They want to guardrail the thing and slow everybody down, or they're like, lean in, let's go, go, go. Where, where is everybody? There's a lot of interest around AI in the industry, in the world generally, and that has helped those of us that have been kind of advocating for use of more AI and investment in that to demonstrate the use cases or even see the use cases that others are building up that we can use as well. So in a sense, that's paved the way and, and smoothed it. But at the same time, there's a fair amount of education to show teams that haven't used AI what the possibilities are and help them to start proactively think about like how that might apply in their work. Because the use cases, I mean, we, we do this for our shopping experience as well. We, we're always talking to customers and learning their pain points. Similarly, inside the company, we want to talk to our colleagues and understand, okay, if, if these are examples of what AI can do, help us ideate them based on what you know about the pain points that you're facing. And then we can help solve those problems to see how, whether we can solve those problems with AI. It's also important to keep the conversation at the right level for the audience, as in most presentations. So with our technical audiences, we want to get into the details and they want to get into the details about that. And then for the non-technical audiences, you want to keep it at the use case level, help them understand the, the benefits and, and how they would use it. And I've come across this in many cases. You know, you don't want them to be threatened by the technology. It's, it's there to help them do their job and actually, you know, move to a higher level of work that they're doing so that they don't have to do the grunt work that is often involved in their day-to-day -day work. They can have an AI-driven tool help them with that, and they can get out of the weeds and, and think at a higher level then. Building on that, a bit more of that augmented intelligence concept where you're using it to help associates be more efficient, more effective, or you know the internal marketing people or analytics people, what are some of the things that you're really excited about that's happening inside the company? Not, not you know, customer facing, but sort of inside. We've been using AI across the entire operation of, of Walmart. So marketing is what we've talked about quite a bit, but outside of marketing, I talked about the, the customer experience and that shopping journey and how we're using it there for recommendations. Even in the supply chain, you know, optimizing our supply chain to get the right products in the right fulfillment sensors and in the hands of our customers as quickly as possible. When substitutes or alternatives are, when we're recommending those because we're out of stock on a particular item or it's going to take longer to, to deliver, suggesting those alternatives. Even looking at trends and determining what are the new products that our customers are interested in that we should now stock, either through our first party inventory or with our you know, large marketplace getting sellers to bring that inventory on board onto the marketplace. It seems like you could have a consumer demand signal of what we expect to be hot and interesting. And since you can now get better and better prediction out from AI, everything downstream is then triggering off of that of that consumer demand signal exactly. and then you're making yeah. all the work that people might be doing to have to write up a brief or do this or do that you can also use generative ai to speed that whole end-to-end -end process i mean that that, yeah. that that's massive massively mm -hmm. important and i expect no less from walmart yeah <laughs> well i mean it's what keeps us able to operate at this scale because while we have you know over two million people working for walmart with with the store footprint that we do have, we still cannot operate at this scale without a massive investment in technology. Wow, yeah, that's cra that's a that's a crazy big company. But then you also worked for Uber, which is the largest employer of people around <laughs> the world. So that's good. I, I I see a pattern recognition here with you. Think off into the future. You know, listen, it doesn't have to be anything in your plan. I'm not asking you to give away anything that you might be working against. What don't you know now 
that you'd like to know. Maybe one way to approach that, if there is a test of something that you'd like to do, if there is an analysis, some, something that somebody could do to figure out to say, you know, I think there's opportunity over here, but we don't know. We don't know how big it could be. What might those look like? Give me an agenda to help you with. <laughs> if I look at the most broad terms, I'd like to know the full value of the traffic that comes to the site or the app, not just in terms of the conversions that happen right there, but how is the likelihood of a purchase changed? Not every visit is going to result in a, in a conversion right there, mm -hmm. but the browsing activity that happens, the, you know, as, as a customer works through the kind of the awareness consideration and, and finally purchase flow, how are we influencing them, giving them the right information, mm -hmm. having them leave the site or the app with more information such that they're better educated to come back to us when we want them to, you know, when they're ready to transact. And, you know, for some items, like you buy a refrigerator, you're probably going to look at various brands, various features before making a decision. Buying a CD, you might already know, and you're just looking for where can I get it at the best price. But based on where you are in that, in that purchase journey for individual items, I want to know how valuable has this visit been? And then evaluate the, the value of that traffic overall to me in a holistic way, not just the conversions, but that lifetime value that I can generate from the engagement with the customer. I think if we knew the answer to that, it would unlock so many of the other things that we would do. Mm. And then there are building blocks towards that where AI can also help a lot. But I would say in the broadest terms, if you ask me, like, what would I look forward to solving? That would be it. Are you trying to isolate the value of the individual exposure experience? Or are you trying to understand downstream what that initial experience resulted in, you know, later? It's the full thing, the, the downstream okay. impact as well. So what's the value of that visit right now? Uh -huh. And then what's the value of it from a long-term perspective too? Because I would then choose to value the, the visit differently. If it's a paid visit, then I might choose to bid for that differently based on knowing that that full value. If it's a, you know, email or a push, even then, because I can send multiple different, you know, messages at any time, mm -hmm. I want to know which is the best message to send at that time based on the complete value that I'll get out into the future. Yeah, that's such an interesting and challenging one. I mean, to one degree, you know, the structure that I'm sure you already use to some degree is to have control groups and holdouts. And then when you can't do that, you can do that with easily when you're making an offer to somebody because you control what offer you make to somebody, but you can't control that when they're inbound and they're going through the experience. In digital, you can change the experience a little bit and see what, what happens. But if you play this forward, I think some of the most promising technology is with the large language model's ability to create much more convincing agents that act as digital twins. So you can look at exposed and unexposed, and then you can, in this virtual theoretical world, run a, what if that event hadn't happened? What might happen? So these multi-agent models, agent-based modeling had a moment about 15 years ago, but the data just, was, it wasn't as robust, it just wasn't as capable. But now these large language models, you might be able to to pull off your vision. I think it's the right vision. I mean, the lifetime value in solving for long-term yeah. relationships, that's what we, all, we should all be doing. Maybe even in our personal relationships too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he did lifetime value and then he said each incremental sort of experience in that, what does that mean? 
and then you're starting to value. I mean, you are going to ultimately sort of value in ads and, and different messaging. And because I think in some regards, you know, listen, if you take advertising, it's just helping consumers make better decisions. It's not meant to be manipulative. It just help make better decisions. And I'm, I'm going to counter that example. You kind of want to sort of ping pong somebody or or pinball somebody to where they need to get to in some way. And if you could just be smarter, more efficient about that, good for the company, good for the consumer, some level. Exactly. And every incremental engagement provides that incremental value. Yeah, yes, exactly. And so you want to evaluate the incremental value of each of those kind of touch points that you have, again, whether it's paid or unpaid. This is a little off the AI topic, but you know, MMA has been working on trying to understand the relationship between brand and performance marketing. That has never been figured out. There is no methodology. I've asked 200 CMOs. I'm very clear now. There's no methodology to have done that yet. So we went and built one of doing a series of studies. What we're starting to learn now, because the way we're doing that, is that $100 gained today from a brand campaign for retail appears to be worth $550 going forward. So now I know if I invest in brand, I've tended to treat brand, I've tend to think of it long-term, but measure it short-term at some level, which kind of misses the point. Yeah. Uh, but now we start to, now we're starting to understand that you, you just taking it to a whole nother level. That's where kind of getting customers to starting with the awareness and consideration before you get them to the conversion, like they're going to be in that cycle at different points for different items. But they're going to be for a while in, in those various stages. And you want to nudge them along the right way, building that credibility, building the awareness. Yeah. And then, again, knowing that this takes time. And then if you stop investing in that, the fall off will take time to recover from as well. But you want to have all of these working in concert. So if you are building awareness and consideration for a particular you know, brand or, or particular item within you know, your portfolio, how do you use the lower end, the performance marketing end of the, the investment to complement that the right way and really build on the awareness and consideration that you are, are generating? I mean, we talk about it as a funnel, but if the funnel is mismatched and you're investing you know, in the top of the funnel for one thing and in the bottom of the funnel for something completely different, you're just going to have that leakage, which you don't want. So that tight coupling is also very important. I did some work years ago for Coca-Cola to where I can talk about it now uh, beyond the NDA timing. And that retail experience is interesting because we were measuring in Mexico the value of having some of their products out front of the store before you even walked in, the value of having it in a uh, refrigerator, the value of having what they call the hotspot near the cash register, and the value of the share of visible inventory. And it was really thinking about how does that experience, what should you pay for, what should you try to optimize? And in many ways, you have that at a massive scale because those were bodegas in Mexico. You have Walmart, <laughs> I mean, the biggest selection on the planet when you walk into one of your 5,000 stores. But in essence, it's the same issue and the same problem, which is what does it cost you when you're out of stock on something? And uh, how does that affect the long-term relationship? Does it make someone less likely to come back to you again, in which case you lose a whole shopping basket full of value? And then if somebody helps you have a better experience, either online, virtually, or in person, does that mean that the next shopping experience, you turn right into the Walmart parking lot instead of left into a competitor's? So I think you're on to the right construct. And now the issue is how do you instrument enough data and begin to use some of the new advanced multi-model tools to be able to simulate that? I think you have enough data. I mean, given my experience, 
you can now take the unexposed or the people that haven't had the experience, better match them up to their twin with real data, and then use the virtual part to sort of bridge the logic. So I think I, I think that's a really exciting area to be to be pursuing. I, I don't know of anybody who's fully cracked it at your scale or anywhere close to it, but the building blocks are all there for you to, to be successful. Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate that at Walmart, at Uber, even at eBay, there was always tons of data. Mm. Now you still come into issues where, you know, a particular item, I, I think back to the eBay days, they could be just one seller of one particular unique item. And so there is still sparse data on that particular item. So for example, when you're bidding in search, you might not get a purchase more than once every six months because uh, right. it's such a rare item. But when you do, the likelihood of conversion is very high because that's the only place you can actually buy that item. And so if someone's really interested, you know, you're very likely to get that conversion. So it was very much a tail play where, you know, in aggregate in the tail, you could make some decisions, but on individual items, you might still have the, the sparsity of data that, you know, you have to deal with. But the other thing I was going to talk about was we were talking about the time it takes to, to get results on that as well. We actually have been using AI to try and shorten that and, and make mm. decisions. It, it's not at the 100% data quality level that you would after, you know, several weeks of data coming in, but you can make pretty good approximate decisions based on, you know, much shorter timeframes of data. And especially for us during, you know, seasonal events, when we have to make decisions on how we're adjusting our, our media investment, it's very important to get that data across all the stores and online. And so we've been investing in that and, and being thrilled with how that's helped us advance, you know, our capabilities there. Hey, I'm curious because MMA has an opinion about this. Are you are you specific about MMM or are you talking about MTA? Because they're really two different methodologies. In this case, I was talking about MMM because okay. MMM had the the longest lead time for us. So yeah, okay, it, it okay. was, you know, I, I remember back in prior companies, often it was months later that we would have the end result. Crazy. You can use them for next year, but next year might also be quite different for based on decisions we've made on how we're running events, etc. So in some sense, it's it's only helping you determine like how that performed rather than being able to optimize in the moment. Don't you have a point of view about cookies in this potentially cookie-less future? What, what are we up against here? Is, is it catastrophic? The world's apocalyptic? It's all going to end when cookies are deprecated or, eh, whatever. The only cookie should be on Walmart store shelves. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no. Look, I think we're used to this now. We've been seeing for several years the move yeah. to more restrictions on tracking and greater transparency in the use of user data. It's the longest turn signal ever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so the phase out of third-party cookies on, on Chrome is really just the next step in a series of those changes. You know, Safari blocked 3P cookies a while back. Apple had its app tracking transparency changes, and we dealt with all of those. And I think we, while it might have felt like that the world was coming to end even then, I think we dealt with that. And the way we've been thinking about this now is in a very systematic framework to plan our actions. On the app side for opted out and opted in users, how are we going to deal with those? On the website for anonymous and identified users, how are we going to deal with each of those? And furthermore, we've divided those into the use cases where this will hamper our, our work or change our work, I would say. Segmentation and targeting is one set of use cases. 
personalization and optimization is another place where you know we relied on cookies and and, and identifiers to help us do that. So that's mm-hmm. a set of use cases, and then measurement, which we've talked about quite a bit, is is another. So I think it impacts all three areas. But really, we're trying to make sure in each of those user contexts, what is the appropriate identifier that we'll be allowed to use? If it's an opted-in app user, we'll use the the MAID or either the IDFA or the GAID. For opted-out users, we're looking at Meta's AEM system or Google's Gbraid solutions and seeing whether that will work. But one thing, we're focusing on server-side data sharing so that we're not having to rely on cookies anymore. I know there are various browser privacy preserving tech solutions that are being proposed and explored and working to see how the DSPs adopt those and figure out that solution. And then exploring clean room technology for measurements is something that, you know, that's been on the cards for a while, but we'll probably need to dig deeper and explore that a bit further as well. Coming back to the topic of AI, I think this is where we might see AI helping us out. Mm-hmm. Because when the ATT change happened, we saw that our partners at Meta and Google and, and other places develop models to predict you know, which devices are driving value for us as advertisers. And this helped mitigate some of the risks, some of the impact that, that we saw. And I think this is another major use case for AI. We didn't talk about it till now, but like, I think that you, what you just asked triggered that in my mind. I think one of the biggest use cases for AI, especially in marketing, is going to be how we drive optimizations in a privacy safe way. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating that when you talked about cookies going away, you talked about all the other ways that will identify people. Because the truth is, is that marketers really want to have a direct relationship with consumers and many consumers want to have that relationship with marketers as well. And so while cookies weren't a great solution, it's not like making the cookie go away all of a sudden gives complete anonymity. Instead, what it does is it just has marketers find more robust ways of creating an identity relationship and probably, you know, much more opt-in. I think you're doing smart things with how you're thinking about the identification and personalization. In my work in, in COVID, we couldn't use any PII data. So there's a lot you can actually do, which is just time of day, day of week, what city you're in, uh, what websites you're on, whether you're on an Android or an iOS, a desktop or a mobile device. Those actually give a lot of lift with AI already. But then if a consumer gives you first party data, lets you have a relationship with them, wow, you can do so much more. So I think we're going to have a huge discussion about how do we give the consumers control? I'm, I'm supporting a startup trying to figure out if we can make that happen. So I'd love to come back to you and talk to you more about you know, what, you, what you think is the right way of doing it. But I know we're tight on time, so I wanna hear from you what you think the most overrated and underrated things you're seeing in AI in marketing right now. And we'll, we'll, we'll end on that point. Yeah, give us a little guidance to the listeners here. What would you tell them to look for? And what are you telling them? It's like, eh, focus on something else. <laughs> I think we have to be cautious about how quickly we expect AI to change all of marketing. We're not at that inflection point where AI is new to marketing. We've been using it in marketing for a long time. And it's going to get even better. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. But, you know, I'm just dampening kind of the expectations uh, in some places. I think it's going to take a while for AI to make inroads into the art of marketing and the creative thinking that humans excel at. And I talked about that before, like, you know, the quality of the output still needs to be checked by humans in many cases. And for, for low risk scenarios, you might be fine. But for things that are going out in our marketing campaigns that have a high impact on the consumer experience, 
on the site, in the app, etc. I think that's where we're going to have to be careful about like monitoring it and making sure that the results are what we need. You know, the, the Chevy example, the $1 Chevy example is, is a good one there. I think that's where AI is overrated in the short term, not in terms of what it can generate, but what it can generate at a high quality that passes the test of relevance, brand safety, effectiveness, measurability, and so on. But on the other side, I think AI is also underrated in terms of its ability to help us experiment with a vast number of mm. ideas, whether it's creatives, whether it's kind of recommendations and so on, and then experiment with that and find the ones that actually seem to work. So that ability to generate lots of variants, experiment with them, and then see what works and what doesn't. I think that's where, at least in my conversations with people, they seem to have not realized that that's a huge area that we can apply AI to. Generative AI is definitely getting all the headlines because it has you know, made such progress in the last couple of years. But good old AI use cases of product recommendations, purchase propensity modeling, lookalikes, media mix modeling, MTA, etc. Those continue to get better and better as well. And I think the advances there are underrated. And many, many times, I think it's because it's behind the scenes or it's not in the press as much, but the impact is huge. So I think that's where we, we underestimate what we can do. And I, I'm looking forward to, you know, advances in all of these areas. Yeah, I think if I didn't get recommendations in either my iPhone or Netflix or wherever or, or, or Walmart, you know, I'd be outraged. I, I think to go back to those experiences would feel like way back machine, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Leo, thank you so much. Great conversation. Oh, I, I enjoyed it so much. Just, you know, talking about this with, with experts like you has been fun. And, you know, I'd love to, love to chat some more. That's it for this episode of Decoding AI for Marketing. I'm Rex Briggs. And I'm Greg Stork. Be sure to catch all our episodes, plus subscribe, follow, rate, and review in your favorite podcast app. You can get transcripts and more information on our website, decodingaiformarketing.com. And to learn more about MMA and membership options, go to mmaglobal.com. Thanks for listening.